Good afternoon. This is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser, and I am at home this afternoon in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, we are getting hit by this snowstorm that you've probably been hearing about in the news, uh, and Joe will soon be hit by it. Joe works in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Jeff. We are getting, uh, we're, we're getting, the ground is covered at this point uh, as well, so. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, this question. Is Jesus God? Um, there are a lot of different views out there. You know, there are people who say, yes, Jesus is God. And then we get into the whole question of the relationship between Father, Son, Spirit. I don't think we're going to so much get into trying to parse that today as just talk about the question, is Jesus God? Because there are a lot of people, of course, who would deny that. Uh, there are people who would say he was a very good man. He was uh uh, a teacher of good moral principles, and they might even try to say he got into trouble because he was um, an insurrectionist or trying to stir up a revolt, or at least that's what he was perceived to be. But they they would not say he is God. In fact, they would deny that. And then there are probably views in between. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses who have a concept of Jesus as something exalted more than man, but not quite on the level with the Father in terms of his entity or essence, identity. Um, so, Joe, you and I believe that Jesus is deity, that he is God, right? I certainly do, yes. What's your favorite way to go about showing that um, in, in the Bible? Uh, great question. I mean, there's a lot of places where we might go to uh, consider that, but I think John 1 is probably the one that I would use uh, more often. It seems to be uh, one of the clearer passages, at least in my mind. Okay. Take us through it. John 1, of course, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word God was God. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is that all there is to it, or is there more in the text that's going to help us understand what that means? Uh, yeah, so in the, the beginning of John, he is uh, revealing for us the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, uh, that's talked about later on in this chapter. We have found the Christ, um, uh, and so the, the coming of Jesus is described, but he begins with this idea that Jesus didn't just start at his birth, that he was uh, he was God. Um, in fact, he was, uh, he was in the beginning with God in verse two. So I think there's a distinction to be made there between the father and the son. I understand we're not going to try to, uh, wade into to that part of the, the text, but then we go on a little bit further. And in particular, down in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so uh, he is God, and he took on human form, verse 14, um, uh, to present to us um, uh, the, he's manifesting us uh, for us uh, the, the glory and grace of, of God. Of, yeah. I think it's interesting, too. You mentioned that the book of John starts out not with his birth as a human being, but in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God and then all things were made through him. Um, in contrast to Matthew, Mark and Luke, 
all of which start either with the birth of Jesus or with John the Baptist and then Jesus. Um, you may have in Matthew a genealogy that leads up to it, but right there at the end of chapter one in Matthew, you're up to Joseph finding that Mary's pregnant, and here you go. And so it is interesting to contrast John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is apparently the last of the Gospels to be written. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus, uh, the man, the Christ, not taking away from their recognition that he is God in the flesh, but it's John writing at the end of the first century who, who's going to now say, now, wait a minute, let's back up. Who was this? And, and the whole book of John, after beginning with that statement, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you get to the 20th chapter, the next to the last chapter, and you have Jesus having been raised from the dead, appearing to the apostles. Thomas isn't there the first time, doesn't believe he's been raised, sees him the second time he appears to them and says, my Lord and my God. So you have a beginning with this affirmation, the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the book concludes, my Lord and my God. And what do you have in between? You have several basically miracle stories and accounts of interactions with the Jews. And what do you see in those? Well, you certainly see a demonstration of his power but you also see statements like, um, before Abraham wa uh, was, was, I am, mm -hmm. in John 8, verse what, 51, where Jesus uses the term I am that was recognized to be the name of God. And, um, and the Jews recognized what he was doing, and so they took up stones to stone him. And then in John, the 10th chapter, and I think it's verse 30, uh, the Father and I are one, and they were going to stone him for making himself equal to the Father. So, so big picture, Gospel of John starts out, let's go back before his birth. Let's go back to in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And, and then let's come through and show his power and show his claim, I am. I'm the I am. That's God. I, I'm equal with the Father. And then you get to the end and Thomas makes the confession, my Lord and my God. Uh, great, great point. And, and all throughout that text of uh, the I am the bread of life, uh, I am the resurrection and the life, uh, I am the good shepherd, and, and on and on, uh, several of those I am's, and you stated the clearest one there in John 8, um, uh, over and over, this book is, is making the argument that Jesus is Jehovah, that, that he is the God of Exodus 3, uh, who revealed himself to Moses. I, I think it's interesting, too, since we're here in the book of John, the interaction with Pilate. Uh, when Pilate is trying to avoid crucifying Jesus, and, he, and the Jews are trying to insist on it, the leaders of the Jews, in verse 7 of, of John 19, the Jews said to Pilate, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And so Pilate goes, Pilate gets afraid and he goes back to Jesus mm -hmm. and says, whence art thou? Where are you from? And I don't think he meant like, are you from Galilee? Are you from Judea? I think he's really asking, they said, you're, you're, you're making yourself equal with God. Where are you? Where are you from? What are you? And then Jesus goes on and talks about the fact that the only reason Pilate has any power is because 
it's been given to him from above. And so Pilate seems to take to heart the possibility that Jesus is something more than meets the eye, and he is a little bit terrified by it. Yep, absolutely. Well, okay, so that's that's a quick look at the book of John. Let me hit a light there. That's a quick look at the book of John um, and what it says about the deity of Jesus. We could spend more time on it. I guess before we completely leave that, we both alluded to Jesus' statement before Abraham was, I am. And we've said that that's a reference to um, the name of God. What's the passage and what's the story so that people can understand the background of that phrase, I am. What's the passage, what's the story that is behind that statement, I am? So in, in Exodus, the third chapter, we have Moses being called by the Lord uh, to go and rescue the Israelites who were in Egyptian bondage. Mm -hmm. He had tried to do it himself. That didn't work out well, fled to the wilderness. Now he's 80 years old, and the Lord appears to him and says, it's time for you to uh, go to work. And uh, God appears to him in a burning bush. He approaches that bush. He's told, take off your sandals because the ground upon, you, upon which you walk is holy ground. And uh, he instructs Moses on the mission to free the Jews. And Moses asked the question, uh, well, the, the, the Israelites are going to ask, who has sent me? Uh, what should I say? And he says, tell them I am. I am that I am. Yeah. And so so that's then I understood to be the name of God. And in fact, he goes on and he uses the term Yahweh or, or some Bibles will say Jehovah. And um, as I understand it, that word, that name is related to the verbal expression I am. It's it's some grammatical form of the expression. I think Hebrew scholars have a little bit of trouble exactly discerning the grammatical connection between the statement I am and the name Yahweh. But basically what, what we get out of that passage is I am is God's name. And so that's the God who spoke to Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus lays claim to being that God. Is it, Does that mean Jesus and the Father are the same? No. Um, there, you know, Jesus prayed to the Father, um, but and, and on earth he's subordinate to the Father, but uh, he is claiming identity with the one who can say, I am. So whatever, however we want to work out the details, that's, that would be a, an audacious claim for somebody who is mere mortal. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, proclaiming to be I am, just like the Jews and John were ready to stone him, um, they are, uh, they, they recognize that as, as a claim for if you or I put on our license plate, you know, we got one of those vanity plates and put, I am, everyone would, you know, religious people, I should say, yeah, yeah. quickly understand uh, he's claiming to be God. What if, um, we put, what if we put on our license plate, I am God? Yeah, wow. And that essentially, that's what Jesus did. Sure. Which gets us to, you know, I didn't know where we'd get to this, but let's get to it now. It gets us to that conundrum. Uh, maybe that's not the best word, but we, we kind of have a, a, a two extremes here. We can either say, well, he is God, 
But if he's not, and he's going around claiming he's God, then he's what? He's lying. Yeah, he's lying. If you if you had somebody come through Elmira, uh, if you had somebody knock on your door there in Elmira, New York, and you answered the door and he said, hi, I am God, what would you immediately think? Uh, I need to help. You need to get him some help. <laughs> I, he's, he's delusional. So, something is wrong with him. Uh, if he's, if he's thinking that. Yeah. So, uh, was it, we were talking ahead of time and, uh, Drew was telling us uh, it was CS Lewis who, um, coined the liar lunatic Lord, uh, idea. Is that right? Was that, is that your recollection? I, I, I believe that it's, I, I, that, that's, I, I think that is the, uh, the proper, uh, source is CS Lewis. So the point being, if you've got a man claiming to be God, he, he's either just a fraud, he's a liar, or he could be a nut, a lunatic, or the only alternative is that he is who he claims to be. And, right. and so we're not left with the possibility that Jesus was this really good and great man who taught people uh, the way they should live and the outlook they should have and how they should think of themselves. And yet he was not what he claimed to be because he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's what he claimed to be. Right. And you know, we, we have that scenario drawn up for us in Mark, the third chapter. Um, in, in Mark 3, beginning about verse 20, Jesus is teaching in a house. His family comes. They think that he has uh, gone crazy. Um, uh, looks like maybe I'm having some trouble with my audio. I'm not yeah, sure. I think once or twice I missed a word or two, but I've not noticed too much of a trouble on at least okay. as I'm All receiving right. you. Okay. Uh, well, I'm worse in person for those that are listening in. Um, yeah, I'll vouch for that. <laughs> i'm kidding <laughs> uh so uh in mark 3 jesus is teaching in a house his family hears about his fame and they think that he's lost his marbles they think he's crazy they've come to take the poor boy back home and uh, uh while they are while they are coming to collect jesus uh the religious leaders of his day are claiming that uh he is of the devil that he is of Beelzebub, yeah. uh, demon, uh, the king of the demons. Uh, and so you have that idea of either he's crazy or he's demonic, that he's yeah. a liar, that he's doing these horrible things. Um, uh, and, and those are two of the choices that people in his day, um, uh, you know, if you're going to reject him, that has to be the, the conclusions that you're going to draw. So, so the point is to our, to our audience is the, the, this is what is at stake. If you are on the fence trying to figure out what you think about Jesus or, or you know, understand you don't have a middle ground. You either got to relegate him to the, the class of all the evil people in the world, or if you're not willing to do that, you're going to have to say, hey, I'm obligated to listen to this guy and obey him because he is God. Um, you know, Joe, one of my favorite ways to get at this question, because now we're let's turn back to, well, the Bible makes the case that he is, in fact, God. And one of my favorite ways to go about addressing that is to look at passages in the New Testament that, uh, that identify Jesus with passages in the Old Testament that we're referring to Yahweh or God. Um, 
I'm going to start. I'll start with uh, one or two, and maybe you have some in mind also. I, I'm going to start with Isaiah 44, I think. And the interesting thing about this passage is that it's a context where in the Old Testament, God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was making the case that he is the only God, and he is not going to stand for competition. He's not going to stand for putative gods. He's not going to stand for others that human beings have exalted as God or think are God or claim to be God. God is going to say, I'm it. There's nothing else. So that's the context. It's, a, it's, a, it's an argument against idolatry, against the pagan gods. And I'll read Isaiah 44, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God besides me. I'm going to pause there. The significance of I am the first, and I am the last, is to say there's no God besides me. And then it goes on and says, and who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. It's a, it's a challenge. If there's a God out there besides me, then do this, prove it. Verse eight, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long ago uh, long since announced it to you and declared it to you. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. So that's the context. And then it goes on and makes a really, a, a really kind of a sarcastic mockery of, of idolatry after that. This passage uh, clearly is what is in view in the book of Revelation when Jesus appears to John and um, he will first of all say in, in Revelation, the first chapter in verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And um, well, I guess we haven't established that that's Jesus yet. So let's come on down. In verse uh, 10, Jesus, John hears a, a trumpet sound and he hears a voice saying, write to the seven churches. And he turns around to see who it is that is speaking. And there's one that he describes in considerable detail. And then it says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. So there's our phrase from Isaiah. So if we stop there, we go, who is, who is speaking to John? Well, it's the one who said, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me back in Isaiah. But then this one speaking to John goes on and says, um, I, I, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's obviously Jesus who was raised from the dead. So here we have a passage where Jesus lays claim to identity with the one who said, I am God, there is no one besides me. But pretty, pretty clear, uh, if, if you were going to try to describe who you are uh, to a bunch of people who were attempting to, to follow you uh, or that you wanted to follow you, um, and, but you did not want them to think that you are God, 
you 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 didn't want them to, you didn't want them to think that you were deity. You know, you would at all costs avoid these kinds of terms. You know, the the language that Jesus is using there in Revelation one, uh, if if he's not God, why would he borrow that language from, yeah. from Isaiah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd have to say, if he's not God, you'd have to say the Jews were absolutely right to be uh, incensed with him for blasphemy. So, yeah. yeah. If, uh, if, if I went around telling people, you know, my, my name is Yahweh, uh, you know, they, they would say, you need to be really careful. I mean, you know, usually we'd say, I'm, I'm going to step away from you because when the lightning strikes, I don't want to be uh, yeah. caught up in that. Um, that that's, th those are claims to descriptions that are reserved just for God. Mm -hmm. You know, some descriptions that aren't that that refer that that are given to God, but they aren't just for God. Mm -hmm. uh, but but those are ones that you know. He says there is no other. So if if you're claiming to be that, then either you're saying there's another God, or you're saying that you're the fulfillment of that. There's another passage that I I like to to use, it's in the um, 102nd Psalm. In the 102nd Psalm, um, and I'm gonna have to turn over there. And it is in verse, uh, we'll start in verse 20. Um, I guess it's actually uh, verse 20. Well, I guess we'll start in verse 18. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And to our audience, uh, when you have in your Bible uh, the word Lord written where all the letters are uppercase, they're all capitalized, that's the translator's way of letting you know that it's not just the word that means Lord. Lord is a fairly general word. It can refer to a human being who is a landlord or it can refer to a human being who's simply being addressed with respect. In the Spanish Bible, Lord is often translated Senor. Uh, but when it's written in all capitals, that's the translator's way of saying, no, that's not the word that we have here. It's not the word that means Lord. It's actually the name of God that we have here. And sometimes people don't recognize that it's all caps because the L is usually larger than the O, R, and D. So they, they think, well, just the L is capitalized here. No, if you look carefully, Lord, all four letters are uppercase, even if the L is larger. So we're talking about the one who is Yahweh, the, the one God. And then it says in verse 20, let's come down to verse 21, that men may tell of the name of the Lord, Yahweh in Zion, and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord, Yahweh. He, who, who, Yahweh, he has weakened, weakened my strength in the way, he has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations of old. Thou didst found the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands. And it goes on. He's addressing the one who was previously referred to as Yahweh or Jehovah, and this is the one who, um, who uh, whose work is the heavens, uh, and and he founded the earth. Well, we go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and here the writer is making the case that Jesus, the Son of God, is greater than the angels. 
And in order to make that case, he quotes from several Old Testament passages. And um, he'll say, here's what it said about the angels, but here's what it said about the sun. And, uh, and the sun is always greater. Verse 8, he introduces a passage, uh, verse 10. Well, let's, let's actually read it starting verse 6. When he again brings in the firstborn into the world, he says, and let the angels of God worship him. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his servants or ministers a flame of fire. And that's a quotation from the 104th Psalm. Then he talks about what the Old Testament says about the sun. And in verse 8, there's a quotation from Psalm 45. And then we get to verse 10. And so now he's going to introduce another Old Testament quotation that he says is about the sun. And this one you'll recognize. Verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. And it goes on. But that's a quotation from the psalm we just read, Psalm 102, verse 25, where it was talking about Yahweh or Jehovah, the one God. And it speaks of the Son and applies that passage to him. Pretty tremendous. Uh, so there, there are a number of other ways that we could, uh, I guess, let's take, let's take a minute, just one or two other ways that we might want to one or two other points we want to make in trying to establish um, Jesus as, as deity. Um, you know, the apostles saw Jesus work miracles, but every now and then there was an occasion that just kind of caught them up and said, wait a minute, this guy is more than just a miracle worker. Um, one, of the, one of those is in, in Mark the 14th chapter, I mean, Matthew the 14th chapter. They've seen him work a number of miracles by this time, but this is when he comes walking to them on the water, and Peter gets his confidence up, and he says, Lord, I want to walk too, and he starts out walking, and then he gets distracted, and he looks at the wind and the waves, and he starts sinking, and Jesus takes hold of him and takes him into the boat, and then, and then the wind, the, they were, it was a storm. It was a storm on the lake in the middle of the night, and then the storm ceases, and they that were in the boat worshipped him, saying, of a truth, you're the son of God. Uh, they recognized this is not just a, a miracle worker. There were prophets in the Old Testament who worked miracles. But this one has kind of caught them up short. Yeah. Uh, another one, so many, so many water passages uh, in connection with that as well. Uh, in Mark, the fourth chapter, you have a where uh, Jesus and his disciples have uh, gotten into a boat. Jesus has gone to sleep. Great storm arises, and uh, the uh, uh, disciples wake him up. Or don't you worry? Don't you care that we're perishing? Um, uh, the idea that they're lost. Of course, they're crying out because they're lost. Um, uh, kind of an interesting uh, uh, situation there. Jesus rises up, calms the storm, the wind, and the waves. And they ask this question in verse 41. Uh, they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I find it interesting that that's the end of that story. I would suggest this is not conclusive uh, proof, I, I, I suppose, but, but I think it's worth thinking through. And the, the, I believe that the honest person would see this as 
some evidence at least. When, when they ask the question, who could this be? Are they just wondering, like, are, are they waiting for somebody to answer? Or is this maybe one of those light bulb moments? No. Uh, because, and there's a number of passages we could turn to, but one of my favorite is in Psalm 65. And uh, in Psalm 65, the psalmist says, Praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion, and to you the vow should be performed. O you who hear prayer, remember they were crying out to, to Jesus, O you who hear prayer, to, all, to you all flesh will come, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your, temp of your holy temple. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who establish the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. Now, verse 7, you who still the noise of the seas and the noise of the waves yeah. and the tumults of the people. I, I think that's so neat that it is only God who can calm the wind and the waves. Uh, it is the God of their salvation, the God to whom they were crying out. Um, uh, and so whether it's this psalm or one of the other ones that, that reference God's power over the, the storms and over the, the seas, um, when they say, who could this be? I suspect that they're thinking back to some of these psalms and saying, only yeah. God can do this. Jesus didn't just do miracles, uh, just random things. He did things to make a point. And uh, that, that is interesting. What, what psalm was that, Joe? Psalm 67. Uh, verse 7 is the main one, but I think reading it through helps to set it up. Yeah. Understand, we're clearly talking about God. And, and, and so then when you have Jesus come, and it, it, I mean, when you think about it from that perspective, you can just see Jesus is, is intentionally, I'm going to do what this scripture says God is the only one who can do. I think, I think that's right. One of our viewers likes the uh, connection with Psalm 65. Uh, did you say 65? Yeah. yeah, Psalm 65 and verse 7, yes. Yeah, yeah 65 and verse 7. You said, I think you said 67 a minute ago. So our viewers oh, I'm are sorry. Saying, okay, yeah, Psalm 65, verse 7, yeah. Yeah, okay. Thank you. All right, Thank very you. good. Excellent. And, and, and similar to that one, while we're in that uh, general area of Mark, uh, you have Jesus uh, healing individuals. And on one occasion, before he heals, he makes another proclamation in Mark, the second chapter, in verses 1 through 12, yeah. uh, where they lower the man down from the roof, uh, right. from the ceiling, and he says, you're healed. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Your sins are forgiven you. And of course, yeah. everybody would have been looking at one another, and of course, those who were against him were thinking, now, they were thinking just within themselves, reasoning in their heads, not saying it out loud. Who can this be? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Uh, this is blasphemy, they were thinking. And of course, they should have just fallen on their faces when Jesus read their minds and began then to, to challenge that, that thought. They were right. Only God can forgive sins. But he says, but to show you that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go your way. He, he healed the man so that they would see he does have that power, and he is God. He can forgive sins. Again, 
when we hear about people forgiving sins today, we're generally shocked. Some religious groups do that. Right. Look at that and say, he doesn't have the power to forgive sins. Yeah. Let him do a miracle to show me that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I just, I don't want to chase this tangent too far, but he, of course you're referring to the Roman Catholic Church as one example. And it's been interesting through the years how many times I have talked to Catholics who are usually somewhat, somewhat disillusioned Catholics, but they'll point out things like that. How can they claim that they have the power to forgive sins? Why do they claim that I have to confess to those people, you know, my sins, those kinds of things? Well, that, that's interesting and tangent. Let me not go too far down that path. Let's turn our attention to something related to what we've been talking about here. We've been establishing that the Bible claims that Jesus is deity. Um, uh, those claims have to be taken as credible uh, or else we're going to have to explain away all the miracles. We're going to have to explain away the resurrection. Um, and we're going to have to conclude that Jesus was a fraud uh, or a lunatic. Um, but now let's get, so let's say, okay, um, if he's God, how does, how do we understand God in the flesh practically? Before we go to that, one of our viewers has a good question. CJ says, why is he called the son of man instead of the son of God? So there are times he's called son of man. Joe, in the passage you had us in in Mark 2 just a moment ago, didn't it say, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Yeah, exactly. Verse uh, uh, verse ten. Yeah. yeah. So I I have come to this conclusion that I, for a long time I suppose that when you have the New Testament referring to Jesus as either Son of God or Son of Man, on the one hand when it says Son of God it's emphasizing his deity, and on the other hand when it says Son of Man it's emphasizing his humanity. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think there's something more immediate that is intended to come to mind when we see the phrase son of man. And I think it's a reference back to Daniel, the seventh chapter. And in Daniel, the seventh chapter, Daniel is seeing a, a vision of the four beasts that each of those beasts represents one of the six one of the empires starting with Babylon and then Medo-Persian and Greece and then Rome and Daniel 7 is a picture of God sitting in judgment of those empires and then presenting the authority to rule presenting the kingdom to one who comes before the throne of God quote like a son of man End quote. And so uh, the text is now Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. The preceding passage has described the court sitting for justice, the judgment, the divine court, God sitting on his throne, and dominion is being taken away from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In verse 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And what Daniel means by that is he was in human form. That's what he means by that. But it then says he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom and so on. Now, Daniel is one of those who was carried away in the captivity. And as he writes this, he is still in Babylon uh, the Babylonians are still in power. The Jews are in captivity. 
but they are looking for a restoration of their kingdom. And so this vision the Jews are going to recognize is about a future Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one, who's going to come and rule over the kingdom. It doesn't use the expression Christ or anointed one here, but that's the concept. And so when we get to the New Testament and we see this expression, son of man, uh, we see it in contexts where very often it's not satisfactory to say it's just saying he's just a man. It's connected with his rule. It's connected with his kingdom. And I think that's the point uh, when he says the son of man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. He's saying the Messiah, the Christ. Yeah, uh, like you said, there's a number of passages. To me, one of the clearest to kind of tie all of that together, what you just said, uh, Matthew 16, verses 13 through uh, 20, I guess, uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Mm -hmm. They give various ideas, some very good people. They all fall short. Jesus then says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, just like what you referenced there from Daniel, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus <laughs> praises him for, uh, for saying that, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about how his kingdom will be victorious. Um, uh, I, I, he, he goes on and describes, I'll build my church. And then verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I think all of those things, the uh, son of man, the Christ, the kingdom of heaven, uh, all those things easily tie back to what we just saw there in Daniel. Yeah, I think it's an interesting study uh, just to, to go through all of the references in the New Testament where you have that phrase, son of man. And look at how often it's connected with the kingdom. Um, all right, now let's turn our attention to uh, some practical questions. People have all kinds of questions. Okay, if Jesus is God, how could he be tempted? Uh, if Jesus is God, what was it like to be God and be a three-year-old? Um, you know, those kinds of questions. And, and you know what, Joe, there's some of those questions I don't think I can answer. Some of them I may be able to shed a little light on. Um, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, and, and that ought not to shake our faith. The fact that we cannot answer every question or every curiosity, uh, Bob Waldron really ingrained in me hard that the things that I do not know do not change the things that I do know. Right. And right. that's just that's been so valuable when when someone might try to shake my faith by presenting a, a question or a hypothetical situation that I don't have the answer for, but I do know about the empty tomb. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I am convinced of uh, of of the existence of, of Jesus and his claims being proven and provable. So when we think about um, God in the flesh, so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. One of the things we have to keep in mind um, is that in the flesh, he, he did not just put on an outward appearance of a man. God came and lived in the flesh as a man. So Jesus would get hungry. In, in Matthew, the fourth chapter, when he's been in the wilderness and fasting 40 days, he's hungry. Uh, he would he would get tired. 
there are passages in the New Testament where he's tired and he, he needs sleep. He goes into the bottom of the boat during one of those storms and he's asleep. Uh, he, he had to sleep like we do. Um, so part of one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we struggle with, if he's God, how could, well, understand he lived in the flesh as a man and he didn't merely just look like a man. He took upon himself the frailties of, of men. And he bled. He was 100% man and 100% God. Mm -hmm. I don't get 200%. That, that, that's above my pay scale. I cannot explain all of that. Yeah. But I, I think that that is the description that is given for us and the evidence that is presented. Yeah. When we start thinking about it, and it is, it, it's odd to me to think about Mary with a three-year-old toddler who is deity in the flesh. It's really odd. But you know what? How much does the Bible tell us about Jesus as a three-year-old? Uh, well, we have one passage, Luke 2.52. Would that be, is there much more than that? And, and, and that's... And that's very general. Yeah, that's of his childhood. But yeah. so we have we have that we have him, and that's the same context as he is the the passage that tells us about at age twelve when he's lost in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Yes. 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 He grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God. And so man. we've got one besides his birth. We've got one story of uh, of an incident in his childhood. Well, we've got when they came back from Egypt, but it doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus said or did or anything like that. So. The Bible doesn't tell us about what he did as a five-year-old, what he is as a six-year-old, what he did as a seven-year-old. Uh, the next thing you know, when we meet Jesus, how old is he? Uh, about 30. Uh, about 30. So everything before he is 30, he lived those years, but they are largely irrelevant to our, what we need to understand. And so whatever the answer is to the question of what was it like for Mary as the mother of a child in whom God dwells, it's kind of irrelevant to us. However, however that was worked out, there, there are some people who feel the need to answer all those questions. And there are some who would argue and have argued through the years that deity did not come into the man Jesus until he was baptized of John. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, so I think what we just have to do is say, you know what, if I needed to understand those things, the Bible would have told me, but I don't need to understand those things. And that's why the Bible didn't tell me. Yeah. One last thing. We got just a minute, minute or two left here. People have problems with Jesus being tempted. Two points I want to make here. First of all, tempted doesn't mean what we think it means. The word tempted is used in most English translations would better it'd be better to be replaced by tested. Um, that's just that's just a matter of, of translation. But secondly, so people think of tempted and they think um, he really wanted to do. He was enticed. He was he wanted to do this, but he, he was tested by being presented with the opportunity to turn stones into bread without the father having said to do so when he supported to the father. And the text tells us he was hungry. So we don't have to debate it. He, he had a desire to eat. He had an inclination 
that could have been satisfied by turning those stones into bread, and he had to choose not to do it. So part of the point of his taking upon himself human, the human condition was to put himself in a position where he did have to make those choices between what the father called upon him to do and what his flesh might have wanted to do. And, and that's just part of the fact that he took upon himself the, the same form in which we live so that he could be tempted in all points as are we. And he could bear gently with us as a high priest who knows what we go through. Excellent. Well, Joe, I think that's uh, probably a good place to stop.